From Finance and Commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. Above all, it's a show about what's next, creativity, and the innovation and technology that are changing how we work and shaping the future of business throughout our state. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers who may challenge the status quo, but also make their dreams a reality. I'm Joel Shetler, your host and editor of Finance and Commerce, Minnesota's oldest business newspaper and online publication. Thanks so much for joining me. I would also like to thank our podcast sponsor, Guarantee Commercial Title. Guarantee offers a new platform for the delivery of services based on the expertise and ingenuity of a visionary team of title professionals that identifies obstacles and creates solutions that result in a successful sale, construction, or financing of commercial real estate. To learn more, visit GuaranteeTitle.net. Fabianski, Westra, Hart & Thompson is celebrating its 40-year anniversary this month. During its four decades of work, the Minneapolis-based law firm has successfully represented clients in cases and advocated for legislation related to the state's construction industry. Looking ahead to its next 40 years, the firm plans to continue shaping the real estate and construction industry through its work, says Matt Collins. Collins is a shareholder and an attorney with the firm's construction law department. His work spans litigating for successful verdicts in commercial and business disputes. His clients include leading local, national, and international construction companies, while he also has experience that goes beyond the industry. Although Collins has expertise in various topics, he says the firm's work on the Spiran Doctrine through the Alley Construction Company v. State of Minnesota case was among the most impactful on the state's construction industry. The Spiran Doctrine says the government impliedly warrants that plans and specifications given to contractors for a public project are accurate and adequate. The firm was the first to use the doctrine in Minnesota. In this interview with reporter Kelly Bush, Collins discusses the doctrine, work on cases that ensure public projects are properly awarded, and trends in the Twin Cities legal community. Today, I'm talking with Matt Collins, an attorney with Fabensky, Westra, Hart, and Thompson's construction law department. So we're chatting today because the firm is celebrating its 40-year anniversary. So can you first tell me a little bit about the firm? Sure. Uh, it was founded in 1981 by Mar Fabiansky. He was a uh, attorney at the Briggs and Morgan Law Firm, which was uh, an old St. Paul law firm who moved to Minneapolis and now uh, is um, has merged with Taft, uh, a law firm out of um, Chicago. Anyways, uh, I would say Mar Fabiansky was a bit of uh, uh, someone who could see the future. And I read, I, I mentioned that because previously the boutique law firm model uh, was not in vogue back in the 80s. And what I mean by that is where a group of lawyers get together and they concentrate their practice on some specific areas of the law and not have a more general practice where you cover all areas of the law. And so he and a couple partners decided to focus on construction, real estate, lending, and then later on brought in some corporate and tax attorneys because they felt that they could provide 
their clients in the uh, real estate and construction industry that focused um, service and do it for an economic, uh, uh, in an economic way, as opposed to some of these larger firms that have a general practice and then also require uh, higher rates for their legal or for their lawyers to charge. So that's kind of how it started. And then over the last 40 years, we've just built up our expertise in the areas of construction law, real estate, and uh, corporate and tax. And, and it's served us very well. Yeah. How, how is that serving you today? You know, before we jumped on this podcast, we were chatting a little bit about different trends that you're seeing in the Twin Cities legal scene. So can you tell me about both of those things? Sure. So uh, what we've seen in the last five to 10 years, um, because of the, uh, the that the Twin Cities is lucky enough to have some large Fortune 500 companies, um, some of the larger uh, national firms that are based in larger cities and on, on the coast have identified Minneapolis as a market that they uh, didn't were not a part of because traditionally the Twin Cities had um, or, organically grown their law firms. Um, and so what's happened is these national firms have seen Minneapolis as a, as a target area. And so they've opened offices and they have also sought to merge with some of the existing law firms, like I mentioned, uh, Briggs and Morgan. And what that does is these national firms, they oftentimes um, charge more per hour than our law firm does and may not be able to service some of the clients that these um, traditionally Minnesota firms had serviced. So we see this as an opportunity because we don't necessarily compete with the national firms for the Fortune 500 companies, some we do, um, but we can uh, look at uh, small and mid cap sized businesses to represent and individuals, offer them a very competitive uh, rate. And our size allows us to be more nimble in making decisions about who we might represent and why, where these larger national firms oftentimes have a lot of processes to go through in order to get things approved. And that's uh, one of the things that Mar Fabianski wanted to eliminate when he started his own firm, because when he was at Briggs, there was a lot of rules and uh, requirements about how you wanted to practice law. And we tried not to impose those on our lawyers and try to let them be more autonomous. Um, and so that's helped us recruit some really talented people uh, and, and provide a, a, a top tier level of service. And I would mention lastly, we may not compete with the national firms with some of the Fortune 500s like Target and, and, uh, and that sort of thing. But we certainly provide the same level of service um, that they provide their clients. And that's, again, another competitive advantage we think we have. Mm -hmm. Great. So how many people do you guys have on staff? Um, we have 60 on staff, but that includes administrative assistants and other staff lawyers. We uh, have about 36 or so. We typically fluctuate between about 32 and 40. That's mm -hmm. generally the size we've wanted to stay. Okay, great. Well, before we dive into some of the work that the firm does, um, can you tell me a little bit about your background and when you joined the firm? Sure. I uh, originally am from St. Paul, 
And uh, I went to Hamlin University for undergraduate. <clears throat> and then I moved to Washington, D.C. and went to school at American University, Washington College of Law. Um, after graduating from law school, I served uh, for a federal judge as a clerk for two years. And that's kind of how I got involved in construction. Mm -hmm. I didn't think I was going to go into construction law mm -hmm. in law school. I don't think yeah. many people do. <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, you know, I was thinking criminal law and uh, other things. But anyways, yeah. this judge I work for, um, a lot of her cases that she decided involved the federal government uh, hiring contractors to do construction uh, projects. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got to start to learn about the different principles of construction law. And when I decided to move back to the Twin Cities, I applied at the Fabianski Law Firm, and they recognized my background could be beneficial to their practice in construction. And that's how I started. Um, and that was in uh, 2003. So I've been here since then, um, my entire career. Great, great. Well, I wanted to talk about the Fabianski's firm, um, some of their work now. So I read that the firm was one of the first to use the Spearin Doctrine. So can you please tell me more about that doctrine and how it was applied? Sure. Uh, it's, I think, one of the only um, uh, uh, Supreme United States Supreme Court cases involving construction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And so back in 1918, a construction company called Spearin was doing a project in the harbor of New York City for the federal government. I believe it was the Navy. And what the Navy did was they provided the plans and the specifications about how Spearin was to build the project. And as they were building it, they determined that the plans and the specifications were not accurate and they were defective. And so uh, they incurred, Spearin incurred additional costs to work around these defects in the plans and the specifications. And what Spearin did is then filed a claim against the government saying that when you provided the plans and the specifications, you provided an implied warranty that they would be adequate, that if we followed them, we could do the job for what we bid the job for. And the government denied the claim. So it went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court issued an opinion that said, uh, no government, you're incorrect. When you issue these plans and these specifications, you're making a warrant, a warranty that as long as the contractor follows them, they can do it without additional cost. And as, because the plans are defective, you need to pay the contractor that additional cost to Spearin. And so uh, following that, it, it really was a, a landmark decision for the construction industry, which is, when you think about it, a, a, an enormous uh, industry in the United States. And um, every state in the, in the union has adopted that decision, including Minnesota. And our uh, firm, an ally construction versus the state of Minnesota, successfully argued for its application in a claim for our client ally construction against the state of Minnesota. So that was a pretty significant thing for construction law in Minnesota. And it's routinely uh, used today um, and, and, and is still binding law on 
the relationships between a contractor and a public owner. Great. Um, so a quick follow-up to that. So since your firm used that doctrine here in Minnesota, have you noticed a shift at all in how public entities create or communicate their project plans? Well, it's funny you ask that because one of the uh, one of the um, holdings of this um, Spearing case was that the government argued that in the plans and the specifications, it said, uh, contractor, you need to come out to the site, you need to verify things and make sure for yourself that you're gonna be able to build the project according to the plans and the specifications. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court said those kinds of disclaimers are not enforceable. Mm -hmm. um, so what we see now is public owners putting more and more language in their proposals that say that you need to verify that the plans and specifications are accurate and you're not relying on anything we're telling you uh, to try to uh, do away with this warranty. And I think the Supreme Court's decision doesn't allow that um, for a number of reasons. But, um, you know, when you think about it, when somebody bids a construction project for a public owner, it's typically uh, a last minute thing. They send in their bids right before bid time so they can be competitive. Mm -hmm. And asking a contractor to verify whether plans provided by an engineer because they're typically stamped by an engineer or an architect, asking a contractor to evaluate that is, is not fair because they're not the architect, they're not the engineer. Yeah, yeah. So. right. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, great. Well, I wanted to pivot and talk about another area of practice for your firm, which is ensuring the integrity of public procurement processes. So um, let's talk about that area. So you represented a partnership in the largest successful bid protest in Minnesota. So can you explain that case to me and its impact on the construction industry? Well, um, our, my partner, Dean Thompson, was able to um, challenge the award of a public contract, the largest public contract. And we do do a lot of these um, bid protest cases they're referred to. Okay. And, uh, what you're trying to avoid is um, having the board or the city or the county, the one who decides who to award the contract to, uh, they don't want those decisions to be corrupted because maybe a member of the board or the city council knows one of the contractors and wants to throw them a favor by giving them that contract. And that's what this, uh, the challenging of the bid protests are. Um, our firm, interestingly, was there was a decision a number of years ago that uh, I don't want to get too technical in the legal stuff, but the Court of Appeals said that in order to do a bid protest, you had to appeal the decision to the uh, Minnesota Court of Appeals. Um, and our firm was involved with drafting legislation to say, no, that's not the appropriate place to challenge a bid protest. It should be in just the regular district court. And so we not only challenge uh, uh, in, inappropriately awarded contracts and bid protests, but we also help with the legislation that uh, makes that process work better. And so have you seen any sort of impact on the construction industry since that case? Well, I think that um, 
what it what it establishes is that the public agencies uh, and the state need to be careful about making sure the process uh, is 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 the integrity of the process is there. So ultimately, the taxpayers play uh, the right amount for the work that's being performed for them. So yes, I think um, all public agencies in, try to do that. They want to maintain the integrity. Just sometimes there there are things that uh, go wrong, and we hope to help our clients correct those wrongs when we can. Great, thank you. Um, well, my next question, I wanted to um, just get your opinion on what case or legislation your firm has worked on um, that you think has had the biggest impact on the construction industry here in Minnesota. Well, I think that Ally case was very big in applying the spirit. Um, We've been involved in condominium legislation. Uh, we've been involved in um, what's referred to as the subcontractor's bill of rights. Um, and uh, that is a, a series of statutes that seek to help even the playing field between general contractors and subcontractors, because oftentimes the general contractors can uh, you know, they're sometimes larger companies, they have more negotiation power. So those, that subcontractor bill of rights has been really, uh, I think, beneficial to the construction industry overall. Mm -hmm. um, and so I would say that that was a very significant uh, work on that as well. Great. Okay, well, last question for you here. Um, okay. Right now, your firm's celebrating your 40 year anniversary. So. Yeah. What lies in store for the next 40 years? Well, we, we intend to continue on our current path. Um, we think we do great, offer great service to our clients. Um, we're looking forward to an upcoming uh, uh, celebration with them on October 7th at our building in downtown. And, um, and that's one of the things we're, we're trying to celebrate as well, is that our impact on the downtowns of Minneapolis and St. Paul. I don't know, Kelly, if I can share a screen with you. Uh, Go for it. Let's see if you can. Let's see if you can do that. All right. I, it, it's something we're preparing for our party. Um, it says host disabled participant screen. Let me see if I can super quickly enable that then. Security. Um, allow participants to share screen. All right. Try that now. All right. <laughs> so let me make sure I'm getting this right. Okay, so uh, do you see the screen there? Yeah. So we did this for St. Paul, and I'll show you the other one for Minneapolis, but the key code down at the bottom, yellow is construction, red for real estate, and, and blue for both. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, you know, the 3D rendering of downtown St. Paul. Mm -hmm. And those are all the buildings that we've been involved with from construction, real estate, or both. Mm -hmm. So pretty significant. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I'll show you one more. Um, and this is Minneapolis. Uh, and this, again, just shows, I think, the touch we've had on both cities. And you know, we really want to see the downtowns come back to life. And we're back in the office um, and, and we hope that to happen soon. But the next 40 years, I think we'll just continue to work hard and improve these industries and, and, and represent our clients the best we can. Great. 
Great. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your screen on that map. That was interesting. I even saw the building that we work out of. So okay. <laughs> that was interesting to see. And uh, and thanks for joining me for your time. I appreciate it. Nice to, nice to talk to you, Kelly. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And please subscribe to Beyond the Skyline. We can be found wherever you listen to your podcasts. To learn more about finance and commerce or to subscribe, go to our website, www.finance-commerce.com. I'm Joel Shetler, Editor of Finance and Commerce. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Skyline.